The following is a presentation made at the 2022 Transcending the Israel Lobby at Home and Abroad Conference held on March 4 at the National Press Club. So our next speaker here today is uh, Radhika Sainath, who is a senior staff attorney at Palestine Legal. Her writing has appeared in The Nation, The Huffington Post, and numerous other publications. She's also currently working on her first novel, which is set in Palestine during the Second Intifada. So be on the lookout for that. Of course, as you all know and you will hear today, Palestine Legal is really an essential, one of a handful of organizations that does work to help students of all people who get targeted by the Israel lobby and don't have the resources to defend themselves. But they do have the will to fight, and they are the ones who help them through the legal process. So with that being said, welcome to the stage. It's a pleasure to have you here today. See if I can get this started. Hi, everyone. How's, how's everyone doing this afternoon? Yeah, you're, you're feeling uh, well caffeinated? <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, well, I know energy levels tend to wane a little bit, at least mine do in the afternoon. So I thought I'd just start by asking, how many of you have heard of Palestine Legal? All right, good number. Uh, for the people at home, maybe I'd say half the crowd. That sounds right. Um, and how many of you, you know, we have a great crowd of people, very outspoken for Palestinian liberation and Palestinian human rights. How many people here have been falsely accused of anti-Semitism, maybe support for terrorism, censored or otherwise treated diff- differently because of your principled support for Palestinian rights? Yeah, close to everyone. Maybe some people don't want to raise their hands. That's That's fair also. Well, um, so Palestine Legal, we started um, about nine years ago. I've been working there uh, for eight of those nine years. And we're legal defense for the movement for Palestinian rights in the United States. If an activist or pretty much anyone is censored or punished or has a legal question or is threatened because of their support for Palestinian rights, Palestine Legal is there. We have your back. That is what we do. And um, uh, let's see. Okay. I should point it this way, I guess. All right. So, Palestine Legal. Um, we have about a staff of 10 people, locations in New York. I'm based in our New York City office, Chicago, and the Bay Area. And um, what we do is we document incidents of suppression. We uh, track legislation, anti-boycott legislation, for example. And we provide pe- people who need legal support with lawyers, um, in all 50 states. And, um, you know, before I get into a little bit about a discussion on the suppression and the censorship, which is kind of a downer topic, I realized, I thought I'd zoom out a little bit and talk about why we're here in the place where we're at. And that's because there is this growing movement for Palestinian rights in the United States. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I, I mean, personally, I think there's been a sea change in, you know, in just my lifetime, um, as far as support for Palestinian rights. And it's the, the younger generation, the millennials, Gen Z, they know where it's at. And people on college campuses, there's 200 students for justice in Palestine chapters now across the United States, Jewish Voice for Peace chapters, and other groups that don't have Palestine in their name are speaking out for Palestinian rights. They're organizing protests. They're organizing events. They're putting up um, mark apartheid walls. They're handing out flyers. They are teaching their fellow students 
what's happening over there about the decades-long history of occupation, colonization, and apartheid of the Palestinian people. And because of this growing tide and change, what we've seen in Palestine Legal is this, um, you know, efforts by Israel advocacy groups to try to censor speech supporting Palestinian rights and just end the discussion and end the debate. And when we started nine years ago, you know, we were there for everyone, you know, uh, in the United States. But what we found out was that about 80% of the people that came to us were students or scholars, and mainly students. And we were like, oh, this is bizarre. Why are only students contacting us? And then I think what we, we realized was that, you know, the opposition gets that that's where change happens, right? Whether it was the Vietnam anti-war movement, the anti-South African apartheid movement, you name it. But college students were there pushing the, their governments for change for justice. And so that's where most of our work has been focused. Um, you know, so since 2014, we've documented, we've responded to over 2,000 incidents of suppression. Um, and that's just really the tip of the iceberg. When I say responded to, I mean, that's literally what you have called me to tell me and report to me. So there's a whole lot that's happening there that, you know, people don't talk about necessarily because for some people it's just you're so used to it you're not necessarily going to call us to document it for some people you don't know about us and it's really just what people come to us if they have a legal question or something happens we document it so that's really just the tip of the iceberg um but in 2021 you know we just uh, we just recently re released last year our uh, 2021 end of year report we saw a 30% rise in incidents um, looking to suppress speech supporting Palestinian rights. Um, and our numbers are also up from pre-COVID as well. Right. Um, so in 2015, Palestine Legal, along with um, the Center for Constitutional Rights, published a seminal report called The Palestine Exception to Free Speech. And at the time, um, we thought we were so smart coining this phrase and um, now I think it's just really used everywhere. Everyone knows it, like the Palestine exception to free speech. You don't even have to say the free speech part of it. You can just say the Palestine exception, and people understand what you're talking about. And that's where um, you know advocates are censored, punished, questioned, falsely accused, again, for taking a principled stance for Palestinian rights. And why is this happening other speakers have talked about it today. It's not just happening in a vacuum. Curiously, people are censored. No, the Israeli government, along with aligned private groups, are devoting significant financial and strategic resources to, to quash this growing movement. And from 2016 to 2019, the Israeli government allotted over $100 million uh, just to, to fight the boycott movement for Palestinian rights, for example. Um, but, you know, I wanted to step back and also talk to you a little bit about some of the trends that we saw in 2021. You're the first to hear about this. We just came out with this report last week. And, um, you know, it was really exciting to see how, you know, the record solidarity for Palestinian rights that we saw in the United States in the past year. I'm sure many of you here were out in the streets protesting Israel's bombing of Gaza and protesting the evictions in Sheikh Jarrah. And so that was really, really incredible to see that. And at Palestine Legal, um, our, our phones were ringing off the hook. Like in May, the number of requests that were coming in from people was just incredible. 
And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about some of the trends that we saw in 2021. I probably won't go into too much detail in all of them, um, since I want to save time for question and answers, but these are some of the trends that we've seen. And the first um, was really how people's jobs were targeted. And this came as a uh, as a real surprise to us because, again, as I mentioned, most of the people generally in our history who've come to us have been students or scholars. And what we saw starting in May of last year was what I'm going to call regular people um, punished for speaking out for Palestinian rights. We saw, for example, um, farmers, makeup artists, journalists, um, people, writers, um, therapists, doctors, teachers, I mean, you name it. And they were either getting fired for speaking out for Palestinian rights. They were being pulled into meetings with their bosses. They were told to um, to delete tweets again. Um, and they were quite shocked because these were people who, you know, saw that their, their businesses and that their employers were taking stances for black lives in the wake of George Floyd's murder, that they were making statements against anti-Asian hate after the Atlanta um, hate crimes targeting Asians and um, last year. And so they thought to themselves, many of them, like, oh, you know, I'm going to say something for Palestinian rights on social media. Or, oh, you know, my office, you know, um, put out statements on how to help your, your black clientele after George Floyd's murder. I'm Palestinian. I'm going to say, you know, if you're Palestinians, if you have Palestinian clients coming in, you know, n- know that they might need, you know, extra support in this time. And this is why. And then when they did these things, they were called in and told that's anti-Semitic. You can't say that or, you know, please remove the social media um, or fired. And I think m- many of you know the M. Wilder story, which got a lot of media attention and was pretty egregious, right, where um, M. Wilder was fired from her job at Associated at at, um, at the Associated Press in Arizona for her activism in college while she was at Stanford a few years before that. Um, what made this even more appalling was that it happened after Israel had bombed AP's building in Gaza. But yeah, the young Republicans at Stanford and um, with allied groups, right-wing groups, you know, published, uh, you know, her activism and, um, you know, she never got her job back despite the significant outcry. Another case which I'm sure you have not heard of is over in Tennessee where um, a head farmer at this luxury resort called Blackberry Farms, which I think the rooms go for like between seven and $1,000 a night, um, farm-to-table type place, um, you know, urged followers to please help bring peace to Palestine and had some hashtags including end the occupation and end Zionism. And he was fired from his post for uh, seven years because of this, because people complained. And, you know, I should say that the stories I'm sharing, I'm sharing with you because people have said it's okay to share these stories or, you know, you can share part of these stories. People come to us confidentially you know, we're attorneys and where they want to keep, want us to keep their, their stories confidential, we do. And this story, I mean, there's more facts that I can't share with you, unfortunately, but they're, it's just so appalling what happened to this farmer, Michael Washburn. Um, you know, again, for something very simple that, you know, you would think most people would agree with. Censorship in social media, um, this could be a whole nother talk, and indeed I have been on panels covering this. Um, hold on, let me move to the next slide. So Hamle and Access Now documented how hundreds of people were censored 
um, for their social media posts. Um, about, you know, dozens of people actually came to us and we, we referred them to these groups that, who were documenting and fighting back against, the, uh, the social media censorship. Mohammed El Kurd, um, you know, also talked about it. And leaks by Facebook later revealed that employees were aware of Facebook censorship of posts by Palestinians, including El Kurd. So censorship in journalists and cultural spaces. So this is something that most people don't expect because you expect, you know, journals with the title Scientific American to be scientific and unbiased. But um, last year we saw that medical workers posted um, an article on Scientific American. It got approved. And, you know, they were talking about how Israel is denying Palestinians essential care. They pledged to um, engage in BDS. And after complaints... The journal took down the article after two weeks. After two weeks, it was published for two weeks. Uh, changed the name and said it fell out of scope. Um, but uh, appallingly, you know, the, 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 the medics' names were still up there and they faced a barrage of online harassment. So over in Philadelphia, the Free Library of Philadelphia, um, which is kind of the space that, you know, values diversity and freedom of speech and all of these good things, and librarians posted about Palestine, including a recorded talk on a children's book um, by a Palestinian-American author, which, by the way, I saw um, for sale out of there, so you should buy it. And the library took down the post after Israel advocacy organizations complained. So, you know, even children's books by Palestinians about Palestinian culture are censored. This is not the only one. P is for Palestine face censorship attempts a few years ago, and we've had other people confidentially come to us who are writers as well, including um, children's book authors who were censored. All right, and over at universities, we are still seeing censorship. And I want to share this story because it, it, it takes place right here in D.C. How many people here in the audience, is there anyone who went to GW or is currently at GW, George Washington University? Okay, a handful of people. So, you know, my office filed a, a discrimination complaint with the Office for Human Rights um, in November. So to tell you a little bit about the story, uh, there's this wonderful office at George Washington University called the Office for Advocacy Support. It provides trauma support services to students and workers, and it interprets the term trauma very broadly. Um, and in the past, it's advertised its stories, uh, sorry, its services on Instagram. That's where the students are at. And, you know, they've said, you know, in the wake of Breonna Taylor's murder, they were there for black students. Um, even after the January 6th Capitol riots and attack, they were there for students. They've, um, they've been there for students again, reeling, Asian students reeling after the, the hate crime in Atlanta. You know, again, you name it, they were there for the students. And last May, um, our hero, our client, Nadal Basha, who is Palestinian American, and her colleagues noticed that a lot of GW students appeared to be really impacted by what was happening in Palestine with Israel's attacks. And, you know, they saw this on social media and they discussed it and they said, you know, there was some back and forths. And um, they said, you know, we should provide a, heal a virtual trauma support circle to Palestinian students. And it's open to everyone, um, like we do for other students. So they tried to do this in early June, and then they posted it on Instagram. And within 24 hours, they got a call, first from the director of Hillel at GW to, to take it down, and then later at the highest levels of GW, there was this emergency meeting 
um, representatives from the board of trustees was allegedly there amongst other people. And they were told to cancel the event and post an apology. And to this date, it has not, this event has not been reinstated. And what's happened is that GW has now, well, two of the three staff members in this office at this office have left. GW has taken away most of their duties. In the past, they used to, to be able to contact professors. So for example, if you were a student, that was traumatized by something, this office would, would email professors and say, oh, hey, the student needs an extension on their exam. Now they are not allowed to contact professors. They're not allowed to hold any virtual processing spaces. Um, they kind of feel like they're not allowed to do anything, and they're being punished. And so we filed a complaint. This violates D.C.'s Human Rights Act, which um, says that even private universities cannot discriminate um, on the basis of national origin and 20 other protected characteristics. And, um, you know, we're, we're waiting for a response right now. This was just a couple of months ago. But I will say, you know, one of the things that we pointed out was that what GW is doing with this office, which we've heard from students has been really incredibly supportive for all different kinds of students, is really reminiscent of what segregated, some segregated cities did, um, where they refused to integrate pools and instead closed pools completely so that no one could go to swimming pools rather than integrate them. So it is really appalling um, because, you know, I think this is this is sort of indicative of a trend that we're seeing right now. You know, mostly people are talking about speech, right? People who are supporting speech for Palestinian rights. Anyone really, if you're Palestinian or not, gets pressured to to, to be censored. But here it's um, it's really not even about speech, right? It's really denial of services. It's saying that Palestinians just can't even get support or have a space to have a conversation about how they're feeling. Um, so this is a whole nother level. GW is not the first place that we've seen this at. We've seen this at other schools as well. And, you know, we're really looking at the unique harm that Palestinians themselves have faced for identifying publicly as Palestinian and talking about their stories. We filed another complaint last year against Florida State University as well. Um, with the Department of Education. Um, it was the first case of um, apparently um, anti-Palestinian discrimination under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. That is still pending as well. Um, and then, you know, we have been seeing censorship, just plain old regular censorship as well. Last year, Butler University in Indiana canceled a talk by Angela Davis, who's a noted supporter of Palestinian freedom, and, you know, they said that, oh, it was a student government. They didn't fill out the paperwork, something like that. Um, after Palestine Legal and a bunch of groups pushed back, the university backtracked and reinstated Davis's talk. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and then, you know, there are so many cases of school censorship. I'm not going to go through all of them today because that would going well into the evening, but I want to just bring up two cases that are listed here. One is um, Fordham University, which is a je private Jesuit school in New York City, um, banned SJP. They actually banned SJP in, in 2016, and we sued together with the Center for Constitutional Rights and co-counsel Alan Levine. It was a little bit of a tricky lawsuit because it's a private school, and, you know, under the First Amendment, you, you know, states and governments can't censor speech on the basis of discrimination. So public schools, you know, have to, to obey the First Amendment. And in some states like California, 
you know, you have the California Constitution where that says that private schools also have to uh, follow pre- free speech principles. But over in New York, we don't have that. Um, so we sued under an, a really obscure legal provision. We won in state court, um, in the lower court. Well, yeah, <laughs> we won for a little bit, I should say, before you, uh, yeah, hold your applause. Um, so we won, and the judge actually had this amazing 20-page decision where she got it. She was like, this is about Israel. Like, I can see what it, what happened here. This makes no sense. Unfortunately, Fordham appealed, and the appeals court, um, you know, throughout the lawsuit, and not on the principles. They actually just said, oh, well, you know, this lawsuit took so long. All of the students that tried to form the Students for Justice in Palestine Club have graduated. So you don't have standing, which is a legal principle. Like, they're not there. So, you know, the new students, why don't they just form a new club? Um, it was a just pretty ridiculous decision because, you know, if the courts are going to take four years to, to get a decision you're never going to have students that that can see, see you know be there long enough to see out a lawsuit but anyways um you know we tried to appeal to new york's highest court and um they only they only agreed about 1 out of 10 appeals and they did not agree um to ours so immediately within a week i believe it was fordham just banned sjp and what was appalling was that you know the students had been between those two decisions, the students had been organizing for a year and a half, you know, talking to people, holding little discussion groups and cultural nights and, you know, nothing illegal, uh, you know, um, the Zionist Organization for America and a, f- a number of other Israel advocacy groups filed briefs, amicus friend of the court briefs in the case saying, you can't allow SJP to, um, to be a, a student club they're gonna disrupt your events. They're gonna disrupt your school. They support. They both like support terrorists and get money from terrorists. I mean, you name it. And those the accusations were there in those briefs by Israel advocacy groups. None of that has happened, to say the least. But unfortunately, the school the students are not an, an approved club. Um, I will move on. So other tactics that we've seen over the years. Legislation. Um, Paul covered this earlier quite in depth, so I won't, um, I'll skip over a few slides um, this morning. But, you know, since 2014, 32 states have adopted anti-boycott laws or anti-Palestinian laws. But, you know, I mean, obviously that number looks really bad. It is bad. But, you know, it should be noted that over 233 such bills have been introduced. So, and and the first bills that were introduced were absurd. I mean, this was early 2014 in the wake of the American Studies Association's um, historic academic boycott resolution. And the first bills that we saw come in were just egregious. They, you know, they called for a full defunding of public universities for allowing um, professors to travel to conferences. I mean, it was just so boldly on the face um, unconstitutional that, that they never really got very far. Thanks to organizing, and um, really, you know, I should say we're movement lawyers at Palestine Legal, so we take the lead from the movement. And really what it comes down to, we feel it's it's the work of activists and organizers that really make the difference um, in pushing back. And, um, you know, you heard you heard some of those those uh, conversations earlier this morning. Um, so anti boycott legislation, there's there's three types. Paul talked about this this morning. There's also attempts to redefine anti-Semitism as well. And I will just say, you should check out our website. We have a really great map 
of um, of all the different bills. They're interactive. But I just wanted to give you an idea, you know, what's been happening last year as far as the numbers. Yes, during Delta, during Omicron, during everyone's kids being at home with them, driving them crazy while they're trying to work. What were our legislators doing? Oh, introducing at least 20 bills in 2021. Um, and, but, you know, only four of those passed. So this is still happening. And, of course, we saw that after Ben and Jerry's um, decision to not sell ice cream in the West Bank. Uh, yeah, a number of states um, have said that they were going to divest from Unilever, the parent company, which is just appalling and hypocritic, uh, hypocritical. And CNN just announced, actually, I just saw this right before that, I guess, um, uh, an Israeli organization that, that's the distributor for Ben & Jerry's in the West Bank just sued in New Jersey. So I haven't read it yet. It apparently was just uh, yesterday that this lawsuit happened. Just crazy. Um, so, you know, goes without saying that boycotts are protected First Amendment activity, their political speech. Um, not, there's a 1982 Supreme Court case that makes this really crystal clear. That is why all, you know, no court has sustained um, one of these laws. And there have been a number of lawsuits um, challenging these laws. And, of course, boycotts are a time-honored tactic for social justice. They've been used in, you know, throughout the years in many different social justice campaigns. Um, another trend that is unfortunately really ongoing is online blacklisting. How many of you have heard of Canary Mission? Yeah, I figure most people here. For those of you who don't know, it's been around since 2015. It's an online blacklisting site. There's thousands of people on Canary Mission right now. The overwhelming majority are people of color um, or Muslim. And... They post people, they falsely claim that they are anti-Semitic for being in groups like Students for Justice in Palestine or for attending protests for Palestinian rights, and they target their employers. And in some cases, they've notified the FBI. In one case, the FBI was sent to a college student's um, uh, school, and he was pulled out of class because of Canary Mission. And at this, you know, so the vast majority of people on there are just on there for taking a principled stance for Palestinian rights. They do include a number of people who are genuine anti-Semites, actually. I think they're, you know, they're trying to show like, oh, look, you know, they're actually anti-Semites. But for the most part, um, you know, these are kids that are just trying to talk about Palestine and have faced really egregious employment ramifications for it, thanks to Canary Mission. And... Um, the other thing that we've been seeing for a while are meritless lawsuits and legal threats. Had to include this because this was a talk organized by Sut, who's my next speaker, um, here in 2019, and Roger, but I don't think Roger's here right now. So, um, you know, this one is pretty nutty because this was actually a talk on how people who speak out for Palestinian rights are censored. And what happened, a group called Americans for Peace and Tolerance uh, brought a lawsuit, you know, was in, behind a lawsuit against UMass trying to get an injunction um, so that this talk would not take place. So when it was advertised, they, you know, they pretty much said, this is so dangerous, this is so anti-Semitic, it's going to be a threat to Jewish students on campus. Uh, they had four anonymous plaintiffs file this lawsuit. Judge, you've got to stop this right away. And, you know, the judge 
you know, the judge let it go on. 2,000 people came. And, you know, this is a group of people that are not scared off by lawsuits or lawsuit threats. But you can imagine if, you know, often you have talks at public universities organized by undergrads or teachers that don't have tenure yet or are speakers that are just community members that aren't as high profile as Roger Waters or Linda Sarsour. And how difficult it makes it to have these conversations. And these Israel advocacy groups have been really clear that this is their MO. They don't care if they lose that, um, you know, the point is just to make it so difficult to speak out for Palestinian rights that you don't. And then lastly, my last couple minutes, um, this one's from a few years ago, but I really wanted to share it because um, I think it's a really great example of the double standard of when it comes to, to, to Palestinian rights, especially when it comes to um, courses. Anyone here uh, went to UC Berkeley? Oh my gosh, only one person. Um, oh, two, two, okay. I, I did two, so that's three. But, okay, so, you know, it's considered a liberal school, for those of you who don't know. I think you know that. Um, you know, birthplace of the student movement for free speech. There's a free speech cafe. Um, you know, they have these courses at Berkeley called DECAL, Democratizing Cal. There are these one-unit courses that undergrads can take a course um, on how to teach the course. And it's really exciting. You know, students teach on a whole bunch of different topics. And um, our client, Paul Hudway, who's Palestinian, decided he wanted to teach this course called Palestine, a settler colonial analysis. So he took his one-unit course beforehand, and he set up his syllabus, and, you know, he was really thoughtful about it. He had an amazing reading list of speakers. Um, again, this is one unit, so, like, um, you know, had a mix of, of famous Palestinian scholars, Israeli scholars, even testimony from Israeli soldiers were there. The UN Goldstone Report was part of the reading list. What happened? 43 Israeli advocacy groups called for censorship. They wrote the chancellor. They said, this is political indoctrination. This meets our government's criteria for anti-Semitism. It's intended to indoctrinate students. It's filled with anti-Israel bias, um, delegitimizes Israel, extreme anti-Zionist, and on and on and on. And the chancellor wrote a, a response letter saying that you know, the course espouses a single political viewpoint and or appears to offer a form for political organizing. And, um, you know, talked about um, Jewish students as well. Now, at the same time, you know, you can, I, I don't know if the 2016 court list, course list is still on there, but at the time you could look at all of the courses, right? And like, these were the courses not deemed political or one-sided. As you can imagine, the cop watch talk did not have any pro-police perspectives, the human trafficking course, nothing there that was pro-human trafficking. Um, helping Navajo rebuild, no pro-colonization perspectives whatsoever. So, you know, it was pretty obvious. We, Palestine Legal, um, you know, we wrote the university. We said this was, uh, you know, a violation of the First Amendment. Other people wrote as well. What was pretty awful, though, is that the, the student, is really sweet kid, um, you know, UC Berkeley did not even have the courtesy to call him before they canceled his course. He had to hear about it from, I believe it was a cousin or a friend who was watching Israel, I believe it was Channel 10, and saw the news and called him in the morning and said, 
um, you know, there's reporting on that, that your course like wants to throw Jews into the sea and yeah, it was just awful. And so, you know, at the end of the day, yes, we fought back. He got to teach his course, but it was suspended for about a week before that happened. And, you know, it was so stressful for the student. Um, he didn't get sleep. Uh, you know, it was awful. You know, he got threats. Um, no 20-year-old should go through that. Again, just for being smart and wanting, you know, to teach, you know, about his country in a very, actually very scholarly way. So... Um, that's a little bit of an overview of Palestine Legal, but I just want to end by saying, um, I always feel like it's a little bit of a downer ending, but, you know, don't be chilled. Keep speaking up. Keep doing what you're doing. And if you need legal help, give us a call. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's such, from the outside, overwhelming and important work, and we're so happy you're doing it. I'm going to start with uh, one question that someone asked here about these different BDS laws in the various states. And the question is, you know, why in some states are these being defeated and in other states they're not being defeated? And if you can just get in, like, more generally, why are these not being quickly defeated? Because to, to us, it's almost concerning that such a blatant you know, affront on the First Amendment by any judge wouldn't just be tossed out. Yeah, that's a great question. And, oh, is my mic off? Can you hear me? Yeah, okay. You know, so each state has different laws, so I don't want to get too specific, but most of these laws are so narrowly written, they don't really apply to the kinds of activity, the kinds of BDS activity that regular people, activists are doing. Um, so to challenge a law, you actually have to find someone who has been harmed by the law, right? So they can say, I've been harmed, I'm going to sue the state. And just to give you an example, you know, when Governor, former Governor Cuomo of New York signed, you know, New York's executive order uh, into law in 2016 with great fanfare, everyone was really looking forward to filing that lawsuit and challenging that law. But it was so narrowly written, it basically said, you know, Companies that have contracts with New York that boycott, um, you know, are going to be on a blacklist. And then after we look at that blacklist, after 180 days, you know, we're going to terminate business with them. And for years, it was just 10 companies, all European, that no one had heard of. It wasn't even clear that they were engaging in boycotts. It wasn't even clear if they had business with New York. You know, the companies didn't seem to care as far as, I mean, not that we talked to all of them, that they were on this list. And so you just basically had this law that was there on paper, right? Um, activists continued to do boycotts. And, and the reason it was so narrowly written is because, you know, again, boycotts are protected under the, this, you know, the First Amendment. And this is all that they could do. And so, you know, unless one of the companies themselves wanted to announce a boycott and then say, I'm doing business with New York and then challenge it, I mean, that's how you would challenge the law in New York. Um, so, so to answer the question, you know, it can be really hard to challenge them because you have to find someone that's harmed. And in some states, they actually, you know, when they have, uh, these, these boycotts, these boycott laws that have, um, that say if you have a, a state contract, they've expanded it to like a state contract worth a million dollars because they know that maybe smaller businesses will be eager to challenge them. That was the case in Arizona, right? A smaller business owner, um, 
you know, with a small contract with the state, challenged it and won. So, you know, bigger corporations maybe don't want to go there. Um, so that's the reason. But, you know, where, where lawsuits have been brought, they've won, they've been won. Um, but if the question is, is why there haven't been, thir- you know, lawsuits in all 32 states, that's a bit of the, the longer, the longer answer. Thank you. Uh, a question here about, um, the American Legislative Exchange Council. Someone just wants to know if you know if they're involved in writing the legislation, these laws. Yes, they have been behind, um, about behind some of these laws, providing cookie cutter templates for legislators. And the Center for Constitutional Rights actually has a report out um, talking about ALEC and what it does, not even not just for the issue of Palestine, but on on, on all the right wing issues that ALEC supports. Yeah. And I think if people are interested in learning more about that, it's covered in the new film called Boycott by Just Vision. And I would recommend that film to everyone. And it does address that issue as well. All right, next question. And then I think this is in reference to a lawsuit that was filed recently by the now late Martin McMahon, and that's who might be the best legal team or the best avenue to continue fighting U.S. charities that fund the IDF settlements? Um, that's like a rather specific that. question, but you know, there's a lot of groups that are involved in fighting back. Um, our, our partners at the, Con- the Center for Constitutional Rights are, are working on a lot of different cases and have been for over a decade now. Is, is it, in your opinion, I guess, clear that these nonprofits are definitely violating the law by sending money to the IDF and so, stuff like that? I think it's pretty clear. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. All right. A couple questions here about students on campus. Uh, how are Palestine Legal fighting back against organizations like Campus Watch and Canary Mission, which you kind of mentioned already, uh, that are working to stifle pro-Palestine movements on campus? Yeah, you know, we're... You know, we give Know Your Rights workshops to students so that they know their rights. Um, we're there, um, again, writing letters to universities where they are threatening students' rights. Um, often what we see is that students engage in speech supporting Palestinian rights, and a number of these groups, you know, send nasty legal threat letters to the universities saying, if you allow this to happen, you're violating Title VI of the Civil Rights Act because it's anti-Semitic speech, which, of course, it's not. Um, it's speech critical of, of a state, which is different than speech critical of a religious group or an ethnic group. Um, so we do a lot of education. We talk to universities. Uh, we put out reports. Um, yeah. All right. Something of a cynical question here, and it's kind of going to cancel culture, I guess, but can we use the same tactics that pro-Israel groups use to try and shut down pro-Israel groups on campus? Fight fire with fire, I guess, is what they're asking. Well, I'll just say, so, again, we're movement lawyers, so we're here to defend uh, defend activists, and, and you know, we're, we're there to support you, and if you think you have, you know, a good organizing tactic that works for you, um, including civil disobedience, you know, we don't tell people not to do it. Um, that's not our role. You know, our role is to tell you, okay, these are the consequences you might face, because you're coming to us asking us what that is, and we'll share that. But a lot, you know, some student groups, um, you know, do engage in protests uh, when you have a, you know, an Israeli government official come to talk. That's their right. And um, you know, I just want to note that there is a power imbalance as well, and it's it's not the same thing when the state is coming in and censoring 19-year-olds and canceling 19-year-olds or a tenure-track professor, and, and they're losing their jobs. That is very different from students engaging in civil disobedience against war criminals. 
And just one final question here. If you can get into why so many universities are willing to let donors, and maybe that's the answer to the question, <laughs> willing to let other people influence and target their students. Yeah, I mean, it's the neoliberal university, right? Um, unfortunately, so, you know, donor, and it's, and it's not just um, Palestine, right? We saw what happened with Nicole Hannah-Jones, the 1619 Project, and when a donor tried to interfere with her, her tenure position. So it's not unique to Palestine. Um, we see it a lot. Um, powerful groups, including donors, including trustees, have weighed in with Mark Lamont Hill when he was, after he was fired from CNN um, for speaking out for Palestinian rights. He also teaches at Temple University, which you all probably know. And there was a donor there, I believe, it was a uh, trustee, who wanted him fired, um, if I remember correctly. So, you know... Um, it's wrong, right? It's unfortunate. At a, at, a, at a public university, it would be illegal, and um, if people want to sue, and at private universities, um, it can unfortunately be a fact of life. But you know, we would say that it also can violate academic freedom, as well. All right. Well, we're out of time, uh, but thank you so much for speaking here today.